1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to talk to Dr. Eleanor Cleghorn about her book titled Unwell Women, A Journey Through Medicine and Myth in a Man-Made World, uh, which is a fabulous book, a fascinating book, sometimes an infuriating book, which I think is part of the point, um, to help us understand Why there is so much misunderstanding, mystification, misdiagnosis when it comes especially to women's bodies, illness and pain. So tracing the history right back to some very strange ideas in ancient Greece all the way to today, this book, unveils a lot of history um, that is important for us to know generally because we like knowledge and history, but also because of the impact it's still very much having. So Eleanor, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Could we start off please with you introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Of course. So my name is
0: Eleanor Cleghorn. I have a PhD in cultural history and a background in feminist history and also in the medical humanities. And I decided to write Unwell Women. I'm gonna say I sort of soft decided to do it. The germ of the idea appeared just after I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease called lupus in 2009, just after my second child was born. And I'd had a really complicated and difficult pregnancy And the lupus diagnosis was the sort of last piece in the puzzle to figure out what had been happening, not just during my pregnancy, but some things that had been happening in my health for about 10 years prior to my diagnosis. So I suffered lots of sort of unexplained pain, other strange symptoms that would wax and wane. Whenever I went to the doctors to try to seek some answers, I was invariably given some version of it's your fault for existing inside a female body. So either I was accused of being hormonal or I was accused of thinking too much about my body, paying too much attention to my pain. So essentially, I was dismissed. So the lupus diagnosis really was, in some ways, a vindication for my sense that I was right to trust my instincts about my body. But it also was a real, um, sort of moment of reckoning, of understanding that, oh, the reason that my healthcare has been hindered over these last years is not just because my body is complicated to understand, it's because of my gender and because of the prejudices ingrained not only in medicine, but also in society that surround especially women's articulations of pain in a medical setting. So flashback forward, Unwell Women was really the sort of combination of years of thinking about myself as a medical subject, years of thinking about the relationship between my gender and my, you know, gender presentation and the way that I was received, and years of thinking about that in the context of its long and storied history. So I began writing on well women in in 2019 um just before the global lockdowns for the pandemic of COVID and yeah so I started writing it then so the writing process happened then but really the thought and the sort of lived experience if you will that was so foundational to that book began more than a decade ago 14 years ago
1: Mm. Thank you for giving us that introduction. Um, I think it lays such an important foundation for us to kind of then delve into this history uh, because it does help us understand that the stakes of this investigation um, in an important way. So can we, with that basis, go all the way back to the kind of earliest bit of the book? Um, Because there's something I, I read there that I admit I had kind of vaguely heard about I certainly hadn't realized the details and definitely not kind of how long it persists. So for all the other listeners who are probably in a similar place to I was reading the book, can you introduce us to the myth of the wandering womb and exactly what the implications are for this? I would be delighted to
0: introduce you to the wandering womb. Um, So the book begins in ancient Greece at about the 4th, 5th century BCE, with the the texts or the corpus of knowledge that's considered by many to be the foundations of Western medicine. And those uh, texts are known today as the Hippocratic Corpus. And they were associated with the legendary physician called Hippocrates, who was from the island of Kos, and was thought to be a physician who taught other medics, how to care and cure and Hippocrates or the Hippocratic method was really the foundations, not just of the kind of medical knowledge that we have today about illness and health, but also about how to care for patients. So this was an empirical evidence-based process that involved looking at an individual person, considering their life, their diet, their circumstances, their environment, listening, theoretically, to them, and then making a diagnosis and a treatment. Um, but of course, you know, so far, so radical, right? Okay, but the Hi- the Hippocratic physicians were also men in a deeply patriarchal society in which women did not practice learned medicine. Of course, women did practice medicine, but they didn't practice learned medicines. So they were not necessarily writing texts. So these physicians were writing medical tracts and texts based on not only their understanding of medicine as a discipline, but also on their understanding of what their society was and what people were and meant and what their bodies did in that society. And in a very gender divided society where patriarchy is the kind of ruling regimen, women were primarily seen as being child bearers. The purpose of the female body was to bear and nurture infant children. So it stood to reason to the Hippocratic physicians that the majority of women's ailments and illnesses and diseases must issue from this most important reproductive centre of their bodies and the most rep- important part, reproductive part of the, of the female body in those times in medicine's history was, of course, the uterus or the womb. Now, these physicians were not conducting aut- autopsies. They were not looking at the organ. They were not understanding how the organ was necessarily situated in relation to other parts of the body. They assumed that because this was women's primary function to bear children, that the womb must need to be involved in the business of procreation in order to maintain its health. So the Hippocratic physicians theorized that if a womb was not performing its reproductive duty or its reproductive function, that it would become pathological and that it might begin to inflict its woes upon the body of the woman it belonged to. And one of the theories about the womb was that it was capable of becoming very dry and light and constricted, and that if it was not receiving male seed or weighed down with an embryo or fetus, that it could actually climb up the body in search of moisture. And as it made its mischievous traverse, it could impact other organs like the liver and the heart, and it could even send a sort of ricochet or resonance of symptoms up towards the brain. And, of course, we, this, I, the idea that the womb can go a wandering is funny. It's an absurd idea. But there are deeper and far more complex ramifications for this piece of medical fiction in that it set a precedent for the idea that a woman is ruled by her uterus, that she is controlled and governed by the procreative purpose above and beyond her conscious control. And even after there were anatomical studies that proved quite clearly that the uterus was tethered in place and could not, in fact, meander around the body, this myth that the womb was somehow capable of its own impulses, really persisted in medical thinking for centuries it was like haunting so even though we know the womb doesn't move the idea that it has such an influence on not just on women's illnesses but on their behavior
1: really persisted so it's this idea of persisting that i'd like to ask you about because um as you mentioned there even after there is anatomical dissection um, and a better understanding of the uterus not wandering around, um, a lot of ideas that are not based in fact about a woman's body and what it does and doesn't do keep being the dominant idea. How is that possible, given the lack of basis in fact? This word fact is quite interesting to
0: me because... In relation to what we call fact today, physicians, uh, medical writers, medical theorists in the past did not have the same mechanisms for garnering knowledge that we have today. So, an enormous amount of medical theory made, you know, before the age of scientific discovery, before the enlightenment, before we start looking underneath the skin and thinking about what a body really is at a kind of cellular neurological level. A lot of medical knowledge is merely based on assumption, which was assumed to be a refutable fact when set against other forms of knowledge. And in the book, I talk about how medicine in these early centuries is so often based on myth so you have stories that people tell themselves about what bodies are and what bodies do and one of the most powerful stories was that women should bear children that women should stay at home that women should not occupy the public sphere and those ideas were taken as irrefutable fact because they were stated in the say the bible they were stated in mythology you know there were stories cultural meanings everywhere that then sort of proved what physicians we're trying to ascertain, if you see what I mean, when they were making their, their theories. So, myths have incredible sticking power, especially when they're told by people in power. And generally, people who were creating medical knowledge in the early centuries were not women, but men who were interested in maintaining this patriarchal status quo. So, that's, I think, why these even when we have new learning, right, we have new kind of objective understandings, it's layered or imprinted upon this kind of old, Mm. very appealing mythology. And, Mm. you know, we see now, we see the resonances today of this sort of non-medical fact, these medical myths. We see the resonances today of, extremely ancient, antiquated mythological ideas in arguments about reproductive justice, for example, that are sort of wielded as medical fact. And I think it's always a really interesting question to ask, you know, who is creating this knowledge and what is their intention with, Mm. you know, presenting something as fact? So a lot of medicine, as as far as I see it, has been this sort of push-pull between the maintenance of a kind of patriarchal status quo and then others coming in and challenging that and saying, no, these stories, these myths, these prejudices cloud our under our objective understanding of of bodies and their needs.
1: Hmm. Yeah, no, that that makes rather a lot of sense. Um and, and I want to kind of keep poking at this idea from the historical perspective because we do have things right like the enlightenment like the scientific revolution like the going around and cataloging all the things and coming up with all these facts and even conceptions about what a fact is Mm -hmm. to what extent do all of these changes impact ideas about women's bodies and health and to what extent do those things actually like, you know, practically make any difference to unwell women?
0: Yeah, it's such an interesting question, because you have what I've noticed in my research and the, the sort of story that I trace in unwell women is that. There's a set of stories or myths that are then proved or disproved by a quote unquote discovery within the realm of science. But quite often, what was happening, at least I think before the 19th century, is a sort of moving of the needle from one place to another. So, one of the examples that I think is really fascinating in this context is that hysteria, which we know to be this notorious behemoth of an umbrella diagnosis for unwell women hysteria is something that is so synonymous with womanhood with unwell womanhood you know we see representations of the hysterical woman everywhere it's very ingrained in the culture but when hysteria first emerged as a medical diagnosis in the 16th century it was first put forward at least in english as a plausible explanation for the symptoms of possession via the medium of witchcraft so there was a man who was called in a physician who was called in called edward jordan who was called in to as a witness in a witch trial case so one of the witch trials that happened in the early modern period in england and he was called in to the defense to defend a woman named Elizabeth Jackson, who was accused of bewitching a younger woman and giving her this sort of illness that involved convulsions, hallucinations, you know, the sort of gamut of what we might call the hysterical symptoms. And Edward Jordan's contention was that this young woman, of course, hadn't been enchanted by a witch. She was actually suffering from an organic illness called suffocation of the mother, Now, in the early modern period, the word mother was one of the words for uterus. (laughs) Coming back to the wandering womb, the reproductive womb again. And he hypothesised from the looking back in sort of the Hippocratics and the the ancient texts, that although the womb wasn't moving around, that it could still send up its vapours, send up its discontents, and addle the body and addle the mind. So I think this is a really fascinating example of how something you know a so-called scientific discovery okay a medical a piece of objective organic medical knowledge replaces an old you know persecutory punitive myth but then of course that opens up a whole other sort of you know wasp's nest of mm. medical mystification and medical prejudice in mm. light of the term hysteria. Mm. And I think we see this a lot. We see this, I use the word haunting a lot because I feel mm. that that's what it is. It's this haunting of old ideas that even when new discoveries are made, they're still residual. There's this sort of tacky residue still on the on these bits of objective knowledge. And we see it again during the Enlightenment, um, during discoveries with the nervous system and the brain, where the idea that women's internal workings were so volatile and so sort of vibratile that they were capable of stirring up all these sort of symptoms of nervous disorder, of hysteria, which again sound very similar to the articulation of the, of the wandering womb myth. I think it's because under patriarchy, there are sets of stories that justify the treatment of women in a wider culture. If we say women have pathological bodies that make them weak and that make them soft and that make them susceptible to illnesses of the body and mind, it's easier to put forward the argument that women are dependent creatures who should be ruled over by men. If we put forward the argument that women are only healthy when they're bearing children It justifies the argument for why women should be confined to motherhood, for example. So this is why I think that even when these, you know, cracks appear in the old stories, the fault lines appear and they're replaced by something more objective, more indeed enlightened. These residual stories cling on, the residual myths cling.
1: Mm. That that unfortunately makes a rather a lot of sense. So thank you for explaining um, that aspect of it. I I want to ask about um, sort of a phrase you mentioned a few minutes ago, the idea of the push and pull, and that answer just now explains kind of one side of this. Um, I want to ask about the other one because it's not like we that's kind of I mean it has been the dominant narrative for quite a long time, but not always in isolation. You talk about in the book that at various points there have been campaigners pushing against these sorts of ideas. So I'm wondering if maybe if we move to sort of the middle of the 19th century time period, you can tell us about some of these challenges to conceptions um, that we've been discussing, especially around the idea that everything is about reproduction. Of course.
0: So we have huge changes happening in the 19th century. And not least of them is that women are admitted into medical universities for the first time, well, in centuries, um, first time since the antiquity or the early Middle Ages. And what this means is that women are now entering the medical profession and poised to challenge some of these dominant narratives because these narratives that were dominant in medicine, especially around women are reproductive creatures only, were exactly the narratives that were preventing women like them from gaining the medical education that would enable them to practise medicine with a licence. So some of these women, many of these women, were already embedded in activist campaigns, for example, women's suffrage, they might have been embedded in the sort of women women's club networks to empower and educate women. I mean, part of the women's movement in the 19th century was sort of examining how women could participate publicly and why they should be able to and why their public participation was so necessary. So challenging these deeply embedded, baked in Prejudices that women were not just only meant to be mothers and childbearers, but they, they were physiologically and cognitively incapable of doing anything else was hugely, hugely important. One of my very, very favorite figures that I discuss in Unwell Women was named Mary Putnam Jacobi. And she was a doctor at the end of the 19th century in the United States, in New York. And she was, I think, the second woman um, to enter the Medical University of Paris. And she was the kind of doctor who was interested in talking to patients about their experiences of their bodies and their lives in order to glean a greater understanding So rather than making assumptions about how bodies work and how people feel, she decided to do research by recruiting participants and doing experimental and clinical research into the question of whether or not menstruation hampers women's ability to do other things. Now, at that particular time in history, there was this huge debate happening around whether or not women should receive the same level of education as boys and men. And there was, of course, an enormous amount of backlash. And a lot of this came from the medical, male, might say, medical community. And there was a chap called Edward Hammond-Clark, who was a former professor at Harvard, who did a lecture to a New England women's club about this exact subject of co-education. And he postulated that girls and young women should not be educated to the same level as boys and men, because their menstruation needed to be respected, they needed to rest during menstruation. And if they didn't, if they continued to think and read and talk and study and move around, that their reproductive facilities would be hampered, that they would be riven with, you know, terrible diseases, that they would be rendered infertile, and that they would be, you know, shock horror, completely unmarriageable. Now, you can imagine the furore this caused. He was giving this lecture in front of a women's club. He you know, caused a huge amount of conversation. There were books that were arguing against his, his thesis. And one of the leading figures in challenging his assertions, which, by the way, was shared by an awful lot of influential men in the medical community in the US and the UK, So Mary Putnam-Jacobi decided to challenge this assertion, not with speech or rhetoric, but with research. And she conducted this survey about whether or not women really do need to rest when they are menstruating. And she entered the findings of this survey, which, by the way, suggested that unless a woman had an underlying disease, that rest was not desirable or necessary. During menstruation, she entered this study into a really prestigious medical essay prize at none other than Harvard, where her nemesis, Edward Hammond Clark, used to work. And she won, making her the first ever woman in history to win this really prestigious medical essay prize. And it was an, a fantastic counter because she really put forward this balanced, humane, and compassionate piece of research. And her whole sort of objective with this research was to show that mythologies, antiquated mythologies, sexist assumptions had no place in advanced medical understanding. So she was really separating out the, the, the facts as she saw them, that word again, facts, the facts as she measured them from this sort of punitive doctrine that had no basis in fact at all and was all just sort of you know, chauvinistic drum banging
1: Hmm. that that is a pretty epic story thank you for sharing that one with us can we continue the theme into sort of the early 20th century um and could you tell us about some of the improvements that women were able to make in medicine um off you know with with more of this knowledge with more of this recognition of course
0: in the Women's entry into medicine was is a fascinating. I mean, those those sort of decades, so the late nineteenth century and into the early twentieth century, are absolutely fascinating because of the amount of correctives that that women who were coming into medicine were having to do. So, one of the advances, as well as things like the question of menstruation, women physicians were also addressing antiquated myths around menopause. Women, Mary Putnam Jacobi, later in her career, actually put forward a really radical idea about the therapy for the disease commonly known as hysteria. Now, at the time, the beginning end of nineteenth century, beginning of the twentieth century, hysteria was still seen very much as a real disease and as something that should be treated with complete bed rest, with complete restriction. To you know, a quiet dark room with no stimulation, no reading, no writing, no intellectual activity. And Mary Putnam Jacobi actually put forward the theory that the very conditions that were being used to treat this apparent disease called hysteria were what was actually causing it, which was women, and of course, women being restricted from living their lives as fully realized, self-reliant human beings. So her treatment for women diagnosed with something called hysteria or neurosis was to write, to read. I mean, she began doing things like using building blocks, you know, it was just these things about making mental connections, about building up some sort of creative and intellectual autonomy, which is fascinating to me. Um, And then we have other advancements in fields like cancer. I mean, women were really instrumental around the Marie Curie Hospital in London, where they were putting forward radical new treatments for cancers of the reproductive organs, for things like cervical cancer, by using radiation therapy, rather than the treatment at the time, the standard bearing treatment, which is myomectomy or hysterectomy which, of course, then had an extremely high mortality rate, was extremely difficult to recover from as well, meaning that women who went through these procedures, if they survived, wouldn't be able to, you know, weren't in the position to care for their children, to work, to live their lives. Whereas the women leading cancer care into, you know, in the early 20th century were thinking about how women could still be, human how they could live their lives how they could still how they would not be hindered at hampered, and of course you know radiation doses then were extremely high and had their own dangers but the thought behind women-led care women care medical care led and thought out by women for women was its own kind of revolution and I think Hmm. also around this time we have to talk a little bit about Advances in reproductive he- health care too, especially around the availability not just of contraceptive devices but of contraceptive information. And the history of contraception I write about in the book is is a is a complex one, because some of the pioneers that we associate with the legalization of contraception, such as Margaret Sanger, the American. Uh, founder of what is now known as Planned Parenthood, and Marie Stopes in this country, have associations with movements like eugenics. And, you know, there are political complications that we can't turn away from when we think about these histories. But at the same time, the introduction of contraception and contraceptive information was an incredible revolution not just in women's freedom, but in the understanding of women's health care, the understanding that repeated childbearing without any reliable ways to prevent it was exceptionally, could be exceptionally damaging for women's health, not just for their, you know, social position, but for their health and well-being. So... While the, while the sort of genesis of, of legal contraception is mired in some really complicated debates that have to be addressed, it also is a much wider movement that's connected with much deeper and much more compassionate discoveries around women's health. And it really does bring home the important fact that we can't turn away from today, that contraception and also abortion is healthcare, that reproductive healthcare is absolutely intrinsic to women's Generally, to women's health,
1: hmm. and I think that the point I'd like to pick up on from from the the many useful ones you've just discussed um, is the idea of information being so key, in addition to techniques and technologies. Um, And and information comes not, I think, just from uh, having accurate information, but also from debunking some of these myths, or at least attempting to. So I'm wondering if we can pick up the mention of hysteria from earlier, um, because that is in some ways still around culturally, but maybe a little bit less medically. So can you help us understand this transition? How, when, and why did hysteria Stop being such a common diagnosis, and to what extent did that make a difference?
0: Of course, so hysteria as a diagnosis for almost any f- physical or emotional ailment in a woman really emerged into the into the medical thinking in the in England in the seventeenth century with figures like Jordan as I was speaking about, but also um, famous physicians such as Thomas Sydenham. Now, hysteria really had its heyday in the 19th century, when it became something that was so unwieldy in description that it sort of lost all meaning or all specificity. The thing that I always want people to remember, or that I try to put forward in the book, is that hysteria isn't a real thing. Hysteria has no entity inside the body or mind, now, hysteria isn't a tumor. Hysteria is not a connective tissue disorder. Hysteria is a piece of fiction that was constructed by male physicians that has been very useful to misogynistic medicine because it served a purpose not just to pathologize women, but to sort of socially control them. So hysteria has its heyday and is used to, met, to many punitive and pernicious ends. But around the so end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, was when hysteria made its way from medicine into psychology and psychiatry. And it did this through the neurologist Jean-Martin Charcot, who had a theatre of hysteric women patients in the Salpatria Hospital, in Paris. And he became very interested in this entity called hysteria and in finally pinning down what it was. Now, of course, it wasn't anything. The definition was up for grabs. You know, I mean, even male physicians at the end of the 19th century would argue with each other and say, you know, hysteria has become meaningless. You know, its definition is so wild and and huge, it's become meaningless. So it was there to be claimed, the knowledge about hysteria, the definition was there to be claimed. And as it lost legitimacy with medical physicians, with physicians of the body, it gained a new kind of narrative within uh, for physicians of the mind. And I think we most famously hisso- associate hysteria as a psychological entity with the work of Sigmund Freud, who you know documented his so-called hysteric patients and made hysteria far more connected to. of latent issues around female sexuality by the 19th so throughout the 20th century hysteria existed as a mental illness diagnosis but i think around the 1980s it was finally removed from um from the dsm but the word hysteria may have fallen out of medical usage But again, that doesn't mean that its connotations, its associations, its implications have not had a really profound effect on how we still think about the relationship between women's emotions and women's physical illnesses. Because I think what's really important is that hysteria was something that was seen as a general condition of womanhood. So if a woman went to a physician with unnamed pain, with migraines, with low mood, with anxiety, then it would be assumed that she was somehow hysterical. And on the other side of things, if a woman did not want to marry, if she didn't want to be domestic, if she wanted to read novels and sort a life in the public sphere, then she also could be hysterical. And this has had such a profound effect on what we assume an unwell woman to be that I think what we see now in the continued existence of hysteria I think we see this rear-its-ugly head when women are told their pain is all in their mind, when women are told they're paying too much attention to their bodies, when women are told that if they just relax more they might not feel so unwell, because this association between the hysteric mind and the hysteric body, it it hasn't gone away, it's just sort of re-emerged in other forms. Um, there was a diagnosis that more or less replaced hysteria in the DSM, which was called um, somatiza- somatization syndrome, which is essentially emotions gone physiological. So hysteria by any other name, and you know even as early, even as recently as the seventies, you know doctors were taught that if a woman presents with pain that doesn't have an immediate clinical. Object, object attached to it or, or clinical evidence attached to it she is hysterical you know this has been again this word fact this has been more or less presented as, as an acceptable medical fact because it is it's shaped the way that we think about women's illness in the most influential parts of medical culture.
1: Mm. It, and I think it's important to link back to kind of what you were saying before about how even new information doesn't necessarily get rid of the old information. It morphs, it overlays, what um, still is there in some senses. Could we talk a little bit about um, pharmaceutical companies and drugs and the role that they play in perhaps perpetuating some of these stereotypes you've just been discussing? Yes.
0: I mean, my feelings about this I think uh, I think about this quite a lot because it continues it often comes up this idea that women or this fact (laughs) in fact that women were largely exempted from major clinical trials for pharmaceuticals and much of this exemption comes down to the this again the idea that women are of reproductive potential in quotes and that, you know, the effects, uh, the unseen as yet untested effects of pharmaceutical medications upon them may in some way injure their reproductive potential. So women were essentially banned from major clinical trials for, by virtue of them, their reproductive potential. And this was something that was only addressed really in the United States in the early 90s. And, of course, caused an enormous amount of debate about the huge, vast swathes of data and insight that medicine just didn't have about not just female bodies, but about all sorts of other bodies that were not white, male, and about 35. And there are various factors that play into this. It's not just the paternalistic idea about protecting and conserving women's reproductive potential above anything else but it was also about this sort of persistent idea that a white male of about 35 was somehow a standard human body which is a patriarchal assumption it isn't a factual assumption at all because there are so many different kinds of male bodies female bodies gender bodies um I think that what we see quite often coming up are these conversations about the ways that certain drugs have not been accurately tested on women and how we don't necessarily know the effects of certain doses on women. But I think what's really, really important to keep in mind is, of course, we need to know that the pharmaceutical medicines that are available to us and that have been passed and clinically tested are safe for, you know, all but possible people, for men and women. But we also want to really think towards not just a sort of binary gender medical testing situation, but one that thinks about bodies and genders across the life cycle, across in its full diversity. Um, Again, when people say, well, this works differently on women, which women are you talking about? You know, what kind of women, what kind of social backgrounds, what kind of health conditions, what kind of body type what you know racial background you know we need we need to rethink i i believe what diversity means and maybe focus less on the male female binary and more on the we want to know this is what's reaching us has been tested on the widest possible demographic of subjects um of course this isn't Mm. an easy thing to do you can't just revolutionize a medical testing system that's already mired in sexism, in racism, and in dehumanisation. You know, there's histories of testing drugs on populations throughout our history that are barbaric. And so, you know, this is a very sort of freighted subject, I think. So it's easy for us to say, you know, women aren't getting considered people in clinical testing. But I think there's a whole, there's some really complex issues to think about, about why we got to the point where we consider, this, you know, the sort of white male subject to be the standard human being.
1: So I think the point is well taken in terms of it's hard to completely change the system, especially because it is, as you said, the kind of entire pharmaceutical system. It's not one country's problem. It's, Well, there's there's a whole bunch of different countries really involved in this, um, and the problem is systemic. But I'm wondering if there are differences in some aspects of this between countries, for example, between the US and the UK. Um, I know you talk about this a bit in the book when uh, you discuss sort of initial waves of feminism in the 1970s. What what were the differences here? I think the feminist health movement in the
0: 1970s was really fascinating because I think it was motivated by really similar ideological and political concerns in both the UK and the US and in Europe too, um, which was that women wanted to reclaim knowledge about their bodies. They wanted to reclaim their experiences of their bodies from the quote-unquote white-coated gods. Um, They wanted to create uh, health support systems that were mutually. Um, communal that was supportive that respected women's sexuality, women's right to decide how to birth. Um, so it was part of a much, you know, wider revolution in the feminist movement towards, you know, women's personhood, women's freedom to exist as people, to be considered as fully fully formed human beings and not, again, these, you know, mothers and wives, happy little mothers and wives. So that was the sort of broader kind of ideology that was fueling the women's health movement on both sides. But of course, as you say, we have very different countries that work in very different ways. And the sort of animal, if you will, of of medical control in the US is very different to the one we have here. And if anything, it's a sort of dominant medical power. And some of the moments that I think are just so fascinating and need to be sort of revisited and celebrated as much as possible is when women health activists decided to take on the fact that the contraceptive pill, the newly available combined contraceptive pill, was causing health symptoms that when women went to the doctor they were being dismissed and told you know it's not your pill it can't possibly be your pill your pill is safe and so groups of women in, involved in women's health activism feminist health activism in the US in the early 70s went to the senate and called hearings about the safety of the pill so that the pill the the pill manufacturers and the FDA could be called forth to really acknowledge whether they were giving women transparent information about the possible side effects of the pill. And this isn't something that happened in quite the same way in the UK. I think in the UK, what we have is a much more grassroots um, system of creating sort of pockets of, of mutual aid in terms of healthcare, but also in terms of childcare. Um, But in the States, you know, there was this real kind of we're going to take it on from the beginning. And one of the little facts that I love so much about these Senate hearings were that the women put together this little packet, this sort of information leaflet, and they stapled a pill to every leaflet and gave it to all the men as they came into Congress and said, you know, if you say it's so safe, then take one, take it. You know, take the pill. And I mean, you know, it's a gimmick, it's a stump, but I think, you know, the the point being made is there is that these women were standing up in a political situation. They were exercising their constitutional rights to speak at this level. And they effected genuine change. But they were also, you know, deeply embedded in the kind of grassroots feminist health movement. And it is fascinating that like there's so many stories of to be told across the intersections of what it means to be a woman at that time so working class womanhood black womanhood lesbian motherhood you know there's so many different kinds of women coming forward to talk about what their bodies and their health needs are how they all come from different experiences and different points of, of understanding of themselves in the world and You know, it's we owe today, in today's health culture, today's feminist health culture, we owe so much, I believe, to this sort of decade or so of activism that was so politically embedded and so politically conscious. And, you know, at some points as well, so inclusive and intersectional. And it's where we really came into our consciousness, I think, about things like you know, being dismissed when we speak about our pain, about not give, being given the information about our bodies, about medical paternalism. You know, that's what we we owe. <laughs> that sort of feminist health health movement so much in the times of our in terms of our ways our consciousness has been raised around these issues
1: but of course the work is not done they've maybe given us a fabulous foundation that we do owe a lot to but there's more for medicine to do to face up to its history how do you think that could be done or what might the next steps be you're completely right um
0: So women in feminist movements, not just in the 70s, but across the centuries, you know, from proto-feminism to feminism, have agitated, pushed back, challenged and given us the tools, the language, the way of understanding. You know, they pass batons on, but we cannot do all the work ourselves. There's a lot of conversation that goes on about self-advocacy and Something I say almost every time I do a podcast or a talk is you cannot girlboss your way out of a broken system. You know, I think it's great that we should be empowered and understand what we deserve when it comes to our healthcare, but not everybody is able to or willing to confront somebody in an assumed position of power like a healthcare provider and agitate for what they need. And in any case, in the UK, we do not have a choice-based medical system. You know, we cannot necessarily ask for a, to see a different GP. You know, so there's only so much we can do in terms of awareness raising. I think we can do such a lot if we are able to, in terms of sharing our stories and experiences, in terms of making visible our medical experiences, if that is within our, you know, the scope of our energy and inclination. I think that's fantastic. and it's the one thing that women were across centuries when it came to their bodies and their health was silenced but this as you brilliantly put can only go so far and what needs to happen now is huge structural and systemic change huge systemic change in the way medicine is taught funded and delivered and structural change in terms of really unrooting the sexism the racism the paternalism that still sadly is threaded not just into medical practice and healthcare delivery but into the knowledge that we have about diseases and illnesses it's an enormous project and it involves a reorienting of priorities I believe it has to begin with looking at what we've historically prioritized for example, male erectile dysfunction, and what we have historically deprioritized or ignored, for example, diseases such as endometriosis. And it really needs to take just a rebuilding, I think, a rebuilding of the entire Western medical system. So not a small thing.
1: Yeah, no, but it does require that massive change. Um, And hopefully, maybe we'll get it. We'll see. Uh, There's obviously a lot of work to be done. Uh, But to finish off, I know this book has been out for a little bit. um, And obviously, as you mentioned at the beginning, has been a really long process to get here and to bring all of this so coherently together. Um, Is there anything you've been working on since or currently working on, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this topic, you'd like to highlight or preview for us? I am actually working on a second book
0: at the moment, um, which I am really excited about. I'm so grateful to all the readers of Unwell Women and to the reception that's had because it's enabling me to continue working within this space. And I'm working at the moment on a book that covers a similar timeline. So we're going from sort of the antiquity to the present. And this book is really looking at the idea of the patriarchal institution of motherhood and the ways in which that sort of institution has been constructed over history and how women and people who mother in all different ways have pushed back and challenged these narratives and it does that by sort of thinking about people's experiences of mothering, of their maternal bodies, of their relationship with their children but also in relationship of their motherhood to, to the wider world, to politics, to
1: society. Hmm. Well, that sounds fabulous. So, best of luck with that project. Thank you. And hopefully, it becomes a book, and we can have you back and ask you to tell us more about it. Um, But of course, no, we'd love to have you. I'm I'm not kidding. I I will still stay in touch. Uh, But. But while we're doing that, um, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Unwell Women, A Journey Through Medicine and Myth in a Man-Made World. Eleanor, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Oh, Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure.